Aquaman, swift and powerful monarch of the oceans, with ability to summon and command all creatures of the deep. Aquaman, who with his teenage ally, Aqualad, guards and defends all that lives in the seas against the forces of evil. Aquaman, king of the seven seas. Welcome back to another edition of Comics on Consoles, a monthly two-part project examining what happens when capes meet controllers. I'm your host, Chris Clow of Movies.com, Geek Nation, Modern Myth Media, Batman on Film, and, well, you get the point, I'm sure. Before I get into the meat and potatoes of our second issue, let me first take a minute to thank anyone who expressed their support and patronage of our premiere issue last month. It's generally pretty difficult to break into the world of both podcasting and game broadcasting and expect to get a lot of people watching or listening to either one from the outset, but I was very gratified to those of you who expressed to me your enjoyment of the show, as well as the people who took the time out of their Saturday to watch me play an underrated video game. From the bottom of my heart, thank you, and I hope you continue to come on this journey with us as we examine other comics-based video games. On that note, it's time to get into the focus of our second issue, but first, I have to give something of a disclaimer before we get too deep. One of the reasons this episode is arriving so late in the month of October 2015 is because I was trying to make this show a special one. As soon as I picked out what the subject for issue number two was going to be, though, I probably should have known something that now seems pretty obvious. Not a lot of people want to talk about this month's game. It's not well regarded, but one of the things that I've wanted to do with this show is to try and illuminate elements about an often overlooked or disregarded element of a comic book character and its video game adaptations. I tried for weeks to secure a guest co-host for this issue that would help to add some kind of substantive discussion to the end of the show. One of my efforts will be part of the story that I'll tell you here, But I also tried to talk with some of the actual comic book storytellers responsible for adding to this character's legacy. Unfortunately for me, and for all of you, my efforts came up short, and I'm very sorry about that. So, this episode will, hopefully, be a rare occurrence going forward, because there won't be a discussion portion this month. All you get is my voice talking about a video game people hate, So if that sounds at least a little bit appealing, then please listen on. If not, well, hopefully I can make it more interesting next time. But in any event, without further ado, let's get to it. This month, our subject game is actually pretty unique. Unlike a lot of other comics-based video games, this one is not based on any other media exploitation of its subject character. Also unlike a lot of these games, it was released as a budget title, carrying an initial market-suggested retail price of only $19.99, when $49.99 was the general norm for a new release during this period. It's also unusual because of its focus character. This currently stands as his one and only solo video game appearance, as he generally appears in games alongside other characters from his publisher, if a developer bothers to include him at all. 
Beyond all of this, though, the game seems to have created a legacy that's very difficult to shake and may have actually contributed to the already poor public reputation of both its character and the long-standing reputation of comics-based games in general as being, well, less than stellar. The game is Aquaman Battle for Atlantis, developed by Lucky Chicken Games, published by TDK Mediactive, and released in July of 2003. Now, before we progress too far beyond the title, and just so we can get this out of the way right up front, I'll just say this. This game is bad. Chances are you already knew this before downloading a podcast about something as weirdly specific as comic book-based video games, but the rumors are true. Aquaman Battle for Atlantis is shoddy in virtually every respect. From uninspired level design, extremely repetitive missions and combat mechanics, a complete lack of vocal performances, and some wonky functional difficulties. All of the elements at play here combine to give the game a well-deserved reputation of overriding mediocrity. For the vast majority of people, though, that's where the story behind this game begins and ends, with the fact that it's bad. In reality, though, that's not really true and I'll be spending the next little while telling you exactly why. First, a little about the character himself. For most of my lifetime, it seemed that Aquaman has been something of a punching bag in the realm of superheroes because of a wide perception about him that exists which basically says that a hero whose abilities are derived from the ocean must be completely useless on land. This seems to exist rather unsurprisingly in the minds of general audiences and cursory observers of superheroes, but it also became clear to me during my six and a half years as a comic book retailer that even seasoned comics fans have that perception as well. In fact, they don't just have it, but they seem to cling to it with a fervor that some superheroes that are really well-liked don't even have. Admittedly, when I was a kid, this was a perception that I shared, primarily because of what I'd been exposed to. My general exposure to the King of Atlantis basically came in the form of the 1960s and 70s cartoons I'd seen as reruns on the Cartoon Network, the 1968 solo Aquaman series developed by Filmation, as well as the far more popular 1973 series Super Friends by Hanna-Barbera. Particularly in the case of Super Friends, Animation of this era didn't exactly do any favors for Aquaman's public image, to say the least. Much of this is likely due to the comparative appearances Aquaman would have alongside heroes like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and he tended to look a little... weak when standing beside other characters, something that's already true of anyone who's placed beside the Man of Steel. I carried this perception for a few years until I started reading comics for the first time. I first jumped into the comics medium during the two cataclysmic events of the 1990s revolving around my two favorite fictional characters, the death of Superman and Nightfall. I pretty much stuck to the occasional issue of any one of four Superman titles or one of three different Batman titles my parents would see fit to throw in my direction once in a while, so again, my exposure to Aquaman was limited. When I was nine years old, though, there was one comic book I knew I had to seek out. DC had announced that they would be releasing a brand new ensemble series featuring their most recognizable superhero team in the form of JLA, and I made sure as soon as I heard about it to pick it up when it came out. There was a lot about that issue that would prove formative to my taste as a comic book fan, 
particularly because that was the first comic book I ever remember reading as a kid that I now know to have been written by Grant Morrison, a creative mind that I now proudly identify as my favorite comics writer. Issue number two was also influential for me, though, because early on in it, a character leapt out of the ocean and onto an alien contraption. This blonde-haired, bearded, armored powerhouse was labeled as Aquaman, but he certainly didn't look like any Aquaman I'd seen before. It spurred me to pick up some solo Aquaman issues that I now know to have been written by comics writer extraordinaire Peter David, and he presented me with a conception of a character that went completely against my flimsy, relatively weak perceptions about the Sea King that I'd had before as a young kid. Today, I can consciously and proudly say that I'm a big Aquaman fan, and the reasons are plentiful. People who underestimate Aquaman's status as a powerhouse really have no reason to. In Morrison's JLA series, it was established that he can swim up to two miles per second, with other comics still placing his level of strength on equal level with the likes of the Martian Manhunter, and yes, even Superman. Due to his body's ability to withstand varying temperatures and the intense pressures of the deep, Aquaman is invulnerable to all conventional surface-based weapons like guns and knives. Because of the way light travels under the ocean, his Atlantean eyes can also see clearly in what would be considered total darkness to a normal human being, and the way that his sight works also grants him a limited kind of sonar. He's even exhibited a hydrokinetic ability in some stories, allowing him to physically manipulate the water around him, including using it as an offensive weapon and as a defensive shield. So, Aquaman is cool. He's completely undeserving of his bad reputation, which, thankfully, he's beginning to shake off due to a very strong comic book relaunch by Jeff Johns and Ivan Reese in 2011, his widely praised and awe-inspiring appearance in the 2013 video game Injustice Gods Among Us, as well as even the casting of actor Jason Momoa to play him in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, the forthcoming two-part Justice League film, and his own solo film due out in 2018 from Furious 7 director James Wan. In a way, though, that makes the mere existence of our subject game, Aquaman Battle for Atlantis, all the more puzzling. While 2003 saw the character get a comic book relaunch at the hands of writer Rick Veitch, and would see a solid run by writer Will Pfeiffer and artist Patrick Gleason later on in the same ongoing series, Aquaman's reputation was still pretty poor in the early 2000s, also confusing was the choice made by the game developers to use the Peter David-era rendition of the character in his long beard and with his hook hand, since Aquaman was actively transitioning back to appearing in his more traditional costume at the time of the game's release. On top of this, it was a comic book game that wasn't based on any media adaptations, which was a little unusual, though not unheard of for the time, and if anything, the character likely could have used a release with a lot of care and attention put into it in order to make anyone interested, at all, about plunking down some cash for a solo, dedicated Aquaman video game experience. So, what's the deal? Why did this game even get made in the first place? And how did it end up being so... well, shoddy? Well, it's actually a pretty interesting story. The game that would become Aquaman Battle for Atlantis originated just before the launch of the sixth generation of consoles out of a deal reached between publisher TDK Mediactive and DC Comics to license the fabled Sea King over what was described as multiple video game projects. 
Now, if you're confused as to why you may not have ever heard of TDK Media Active as a video game publisher, you wouldn't be the only one. Most people familiar with the TDK brand recognize the company as a manufacturer of various blank media. At the height of disc-based distribution for games, music, and movies, TDK branded products like blank video and audio cassettes, CDs, and DVDs were plentiful inside electronic shops, and TDK was often my personal choice if I needed something that required a blank CD or DVD. They were inexpensive, came in a variety of formats and colors, and seemed to meet my needs, and certainly the needs of many others, very well. Still, that leads to a question. Why would a blank media manufacturer get in the business of publishing video games? On top of that, what games have they published? Well, TDK Media Active published its very first game project in 1996, which was released exclusively on PC. They wouldn't publish another notable game until five years later in 2001, with the release of Casper Spirit Dimensions on the PlayStation 2 and Nintendo GameCube consoles. That game was created by a developer called Lucky Chicken Games. But we'll get to them in a minute. TDK Media Active, at least from the knowledge I was able to cultivate in doing research about them, published a grand total of 12 games, with 11 of them being released between 2001 and 2005. All of the games that they published were also licensed titles, ranging in properties like Shrek, Robotech, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dinotopia, and Conan the Barbarian. Only a few of the games released under their banner gleaned positive reviews, with the standout of the library looking like Robotech Battlecry, which was solidly received by critics. After the publisher's final release, a GameCube port of their Conan game, it became a wholly owned subsidiary of Take-Two Interactive, and still exists in some form today as 2K Play, spending its time both developing and publishing family-oriented games on multiple platforms. So, that basically sums up who TDK Media Active was and is. Its relationship with the underrated Justice League member Aquaman came to public attention in October of 2001, just about a month before the launch of Microsoft's Xbox and Nintendo's GameCube. In a press release announcing the licensing agreement that would ultimately give rise to the development of Battle for Atlantis, it reads, quote, TDK Media Active, a global publisher of entertainment software, announced today a long-term, worldwide licensing agreement with DC Comics for their legendary underwater superhero, Aquaman. The agreement gives TDK Media Active the rights to develop and publish multiple games featuring Aquaman and his underwater kingdom Atlantis for next-generation video game platforms. The first Aquaman title is scheduled to release in 2002. Platforms will be announced at a later date." End quote. The release then features quotes from some executives who proclaim that the style and history of Aquaman's adventures in the comics will be a great jumping-off point for developers to use these new, more powerful consoles to help show off the graphical capabilities of the likes of the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and GameCube. And a DC Comics licensing executive was even quoted as saying that TDK's track record gave the comics publisher specific confidence in their ability to create and represent the Aquaman character and his world to a gaming audience very well. <sighs> it's kind of hard not to laugh or cry at that kind of statement when you read it today, but hindsight's always twenty twenty. 
unless, of course, you're underwater without goggles. In any event, though, if you're keeping track of the narrative up to this point, you might have noted that something may already be wrong. In the press release, 2002 is explicitly mentioned as the target window for the release of the first Aquaman game under DC's licensing deal with TDK. The game that we got in the form of Battle for Atlantis wasn't ultimately released until 2003. And not even early 2003. The game didn't ship to retailers until July. Now, that's not an issue in and of itself automatically, but considering the amount of time for an Aquaman game to be developed under the new deal, along with the time that actually passed between the announcement and the release, and coupling that with the kind of product we ended up getting, it seems to me that when taking all of those factors into account, something stinks on a deeper, more fundamental level about Aquaman Battle for Atlantis. Now, when I talk about the final product that gamers and fans ultimately got to play, it becomes pretty clear that this is a shoddy experience as soon as you pick up a controller and start a new game. The Sea King is sluggish, the navigation system is as simplistic as it can possibly be, enemy AI is extraordinarily weak even when considering the game's release era, and the controls are somewhat finicky. Oftentimes, it gets lumped by gamers into the same category as Titus's Superman 64, a game largely considered to be the undisputed champion of superheroic gaming garbage, even immediately following its release in 1999. You can go online and see video game YouTube celebrities like James Rolfe, aka the Angry Video Game Nerd, and JonTron spend several minutes creatively taking a dump all over Aquaman Battle for Atlantis from beginning to end. One thing that was kind of cool about the game is that it actually had unlockable skins, allowing you to play as different characters. Some videos on YouTube that start playing seem confused by the character select screen, which only displays a series of question marks if you have yet to beat it. After your first, and frankly likely only, playthrough, you then have the option of selecting Tempest, formerly known as Aqualad, Black Manta, or the classic orange-topped version of Aquaman most people know of. Still though, playing in any one of these skins does nothing to change the actual gameplay elements of Battle for Atlantis. It's still a bad game. Speaking in terms of strictly the game's aesthetic presentation, I actually tend to think that the graphical look isn't that bad. It's not a masterpiece by any means, but the overall look of the landscapes under the ocean and the light beaming through from above actually looks kind of nice, and a lot has already been said by many other commentators about the specific attention given to Aquaman's flowing, Fabio-like hair. It's not the graphics that make the game bad, and in some ways it's not even the act of playing it that makes it feel bad. You see, there are two kinds of bad games. On one hand, you have the one that is so technically deficient that it borders on unplayable, Controls don't work as they're supposed to, the camera defies logic, pressing buttons yields no response whatsoever, and so on. Those games are bad because they're so inherently frustrating that you just bubble up with rage and throw your controller to the floor in disgust for spending money on something so downright unplayable. The other kind of bad game is the one that works, and most importantly works as it's designed to, but is such a thin experience that you wonder why you ever spent that much time staring at a screen, repeatedly doing the most monotonous things possible. Aquaman is the latter, 
I don't feel like it's a really frustrating experience by any means. It's relatively easy to beat in just a couple of hours, and for the most part it stands as a cakewalk. That cake is just so small and substanceless that you know it's going to go straight to your butt after you finish it, and you have to have something good to offset the empty calories you just willfully put into your body. Battle for Atlantis isn't bad purely because of the way that it's designed. It does everything it intends to do, and what it intends to do is just, simply, not enough to warrant anything resembling a good experience. That's what makes the disparity between the deal's announcement and the game's release ultimately so puzzling. What did the developers at Lucky Chicken spend their time doing the whole time this game was being developed? Or did TDK just sit on this deal for so long and start development so late that the final product is a haphazard item rushed to market way too soon? Well, from what I've been able to glean by going as far as I possibly could, it may be a combination of both. You see, as I was buttoning up issue number one of this show, and preparing to do the Twitch broadcast for the Batman Begins game in early September, I'd already determined that Battle for Atlantis was going to be the next game for this show to tackle. To that end, I wanted to truly make this episode something special because of the fact that so many people are willfully, and rightfully I should add, dismissive of this game overall. To make the show special and as in-depth as possible on the series of decisions that led to the game's creation, I did something that I naively thought would be relatively easy, and actively sought out some of the people that had actually worked on the game to see if I could get them to talk about it with me, for you. My top choice to talk to in this episode's discussion section still works in the gaming industry, so I began by going through the proper channels in an attempt to actually see if I could secure their involvement as the month's co-host so that we could talk honestly and without judgment about just what went down to get the game released in the manner in which it ultimately was. The contact I spoke to seemed optimistic about this person's potential willingness to talk to me on the record, so I was naturally pretty excited. I then turned my attention back to finishing issue number one, to release the podcast for people to listen to and then watch through the Twitch broadcast, which is also currently available on YouTube if you missed it. A few days had passed after the full release of issue number one, and I was starting to grow a little bit nervous. I reached back out to the contact I'd made to see if anything new had developed on securing this potential guest, and it was there that I was informed that this person wasn't interested in talking with me. In fact, it sounds like they actively wanted to stay away from me and the topic that I'd chosen. I know this sounds hyperbolic, but I was devastated. Very disappointed. It's of course a reality that anyone has to face from time to time when dealing with a sensitive subject, but that was just the thing. I had no idea that Aquaman Battle for Atlantis was a sensitive subject, particularly for the people that made it. When I pressed this contact about why the developer seemed so adamant against talking with me, I was told that there were a couple of different reasons. One, since they still work in the gaming industry and are actively working on the development and release of a new title, they didn't want the fact that they had worked on such a badly regarded game out in the press for other people to potentially discover. Because the game is so generally reviled, they have the feeling that any solid link between their name and the Aquaman game could potentially hurt their chances at getting work within the gaming industry. In the moment, I half-heartedly thought about directly challenging this idea. 
This is a very small startup podcast, after all, and I'd consider myself extremely lucky if even 75 or 100 people actually listened to it. Instead, though, I let it slide. The second reason was a little more shocking, but far more understandable. Apparently, the experience of actually making Aquaman Battle for Atlantis was so bad that this developer simply didn't want to travel down that avenue of memory lane. I tried to get more information on this from my contact, who explained to me that the rigors of working on a license can sometimes be extreme for a game developer, since they often have to answer to a lot of different people as opposed to an original creation where there's not much of a brand concern present. Something about that struck me, though, simply because of my contact's tone. It sounds like this was more than a simple case of Battle for Atlantis being a tough experience. If there's any word I can choose to try and get across the emotion that they were trying to convey, then it almost sounded as if working on this game was hurtful to this developer. So, since they had made it abundantly clear that this developer would rather try and erase this job from their life as much as possible instead of reliving those painful memories by talking with me, I thanked my contact for their efforts and hung up the phone. Then... I started to think about this a little bit further. Gaming culture is a funny thing. There are segments of it that are very accepting and open to new people and ideas. Generally, though, when confronted with a video game that is unabashedly bad, critics, gamers, and more casual players alike are extraordinarily vocal and even a bit brutal to the experience. It's become a pastime of revelry and outrage, and people have even made entire careers off of the complete and utter skewering of video games that don't manage to meet our expectations. Now, I'm not saying that bad games should be exempt from being called what they are just so we can spare a developer's feelings, especially if someone shells out between 60 or, today, $120 of their hard-earned money to play something that doesn't deserve it. In the case of Battle for Atlantis, though, things are a little bit different. As I told you at the top of the show, the MSRP of this game was less than half of what the vast majority of new games asked for at the time. It was based on a license that likely didn't have a lot of commercial viability unless there was going to be considerable effort poured into it. Placing myself in the shoes of some of the people at Lucky Chicken Games and looking at the joy that so many people take in completely dumping on this game, I can understand why some feelings might be hurt. With the benefit of hindsight, it's easy for me or anyone else to say that this studio was the wrong choice for this project. If an Aquaman game was going to succeed in a climate of general disregard for the character, and in the face of so many other superhero exploitations which were well on their way to gaining a lot of steam back then, it becomes clear that this was a deal of convenience, and likely one where both TDK and Warner Brothers saw some quick money to be made. It's clear that such a climate of general mediocrity and disregard can have a very real price, and that's the respect of the people who tried to make this game. Why is that a very real price? Because one of the people that worked on this game thought that they'd be risking their reputation in the industry they rely on for livelihood by talking to a highly specialized, dinky little podcast. If that is too much of a risk then the people who ultimately decided to make this game a reality were willing to sacrifice a little too much to spit a game of such subpar quality onto store shelves. 
In the end, it's very clear that Aquaman Battle for Atlantis is a bad game. People were clearly not ready to like the character back in 2003 anyways, and it's only just now, at the end of 2015, that the general public seems like they might be ready to give the character a chance after a great fighting game appearance and a very solid comic book run. While I certainly have found out a lot of interesting things about the game over the past couple of months and seeking more out about it, I still can't really come to a definitive conclusion about why exactly it was made in the first place. With the facts at hand, though, I can't help but conclude that the licensing deal was one of convenience. TDK Media Active wanted to get their hands on a superhero property, and Warner Brothers and DC Comics likely saw that a publisher like that could only really handle one of the lowest-tier franchises in the end, likely to minimize risk. Aquaman didn't really have anything to lose by that point, but the game has only further proved in some people's minds the false perception that Aquaman is a character worth ignoring. Beyond that, the actual development of this game likely made the lives of the people behind Lucky Chicken Games quite a bit harder, and I can tell you with great confidence that those wounds are still fresh enough today that they still don't want to go anywhere near the awful experience of actually making this game a reality. It looks like that $19.99 game ended up costing a lot more than some people might have thought. I'm the king of Atlantis. I answer to no one. And, unfortunately, because we don't have a discussion portion of the show, that's going to wrap up Comics on Consoles issue number two and the story of Aquaman Battle for Atlantis. Again, I'm sorry that I don't have a discussion portion for you to listen to this time, but I want to thank you sincerely for downloading and listening to this show, and I hope you come back next month for a brand new issue. Speaking of next month, I thought it might be time to explore a very real phenomenon that only seems to come around once in a blue, or green, moon. Believe it or not, there are some comic book movie video games that you can actually likely call better than the film they're based on. It seems like enough comic book games are often bad enough, but when one comes along that manages to be that good? Well, that's definitely territory worth exploring. This game still surprises me, considering that I have more fun playing it than actually watching its parent film, especially considering that it would ultimately lead to what many fans consider to be the definitive gaming experience based on this character. So, be sure to join us next month as Comics on Consoles issue number 3 focuses on the video game based on the 2003 film directed by Ang Lee, Hulk developed by Radical Entertainment and published by Vivendi Universal Games in 2003 for the Microsoft Xbox, Nintendo GameCube, and Sony PlayStation 2. Look for that issue to drop sometime in November. In the meantime, you can find Comics on Consoles on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Comics Consoles, and be sure to subscribe to the show on Podbean or iTunes. You can also follow along by finding me on Twitter at Chris Clow. Also, if you have any suggestions, or if you wanted to ask a question for a future mailbag episode, which I am currently developing, then feel free to drop a line to any of the mentioned social media outlets, or email the show directly at comicsonconsoles, all one word, at gmail.com. I promise you that I read anything and everything that comes my way.
Until next month, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. Why not play one in a video game? Thanks again for listening, take care, and I'll talk with you again soon. I'm to be on dry land.